My name is Blue Stocking, and I will be your librarian and your host for the next hour. If you are a returning listener, you have my eternal thanks for continuing to tune in. If this is your first time in the dollhouse, please come in, have a seat. But be aware that the show is, by necessity, going to be overflowing with spoilers, so if that's an issue, I would ask you to turn back now. Read the books that are listed in the credits before you continue, and it's okay, I promise. I will be here when you get back. Hey guys, what's up? What's up? <laughs> uh, so PhD school is bonkers. Um, yeah, it's crazy. I'm taking three classes uh, full time. Typically for a PhD student, is six hours, but I decided to take nine hours, three classes. Yeah, I've got classes three nights a week, and yeah, they're at night because you know that's how it works when you're growing up, I guess. Um, a little rough because I'm used to being on the couch in my pajamas at 8 o'clock watching TV. So it's, it's been a little bit of an adjustment. Um, it's good, though. Uh, a little nerve-wracking, um, a little scared still. But it's also comforting to know that so many of my classmates are just as lost as I am. Uh, it helps. It, it helps to alleviate some of the terror and the dread. <laughs> dread. Yeah, see what I did there? So, um... The classes are, are good. I am busy a lot. So what I'm going to be doing as far as the show, the schedule for the show, I was going to try to get back to the two weeks if I could, um, but I wasn't sure if that was um, doable. Now that I've actually started school and I know what's going on, it's going to be once a month. It won't be the same time every month simply because I have a lot of homework. There are a lot of assignments that have to be done, as you can imagine, a lot of reading. Um, and so, and there's not a lot of time during the week to do any kind of, you know, stuff. So essentially, I have to take all of my podcasting and cram it into one day, all the prep work and everything else um, on the weekends. So I'm going to do my best to get you one episode a month. Um, and we'll put it at that, leave it at that. Um, but it's good. I'm, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot of theories and ideas that the one thing that sticks in my head is that nobody, like one of my classes, narrative theory, nobody can seem to agree on what exactly narrative theory is. There's a lot of different theories about narrative theory, a lot of competing theories and ideas. Um, and I think that's what I have to try to wrap my head around is all the different ideas and conclusions and discussions around some of these things. Now, some things are pretty straightforward and cut and dry. Um, one of my other classes, my research class that we have to take, um, it's research. You know, it's, it's, it's cut and dry. It's not about theory. It's about this is how you do this and this is how you do this. This is how you find this. And you're going to need all of this information for your eventual dissertation. So... That's pretty cut and dry. Um, I did put out a post on Twitter uh, right after school started um, that if you have information or know of steampunk dissertations or theses that have been written, um, 
contact me and let me know. I do have a list, a running list. Uh, there's, I think right now I've found about 10 or 12 of them. Um, one of which, of course, is the one by Mike Prashawn. Two of them are Jamie Goes, her master's and her uh, PhD, um, her thesis and her dissertation. And then some others that I've found in among there. Most of them have been written within, I'd say, about the last 10 to 12 years. Um, but I, I, what I want to make sure is that I don't overlap. Uh, I don't want to cross over with what anybody else is working on. And I know that there are some that are being worked on right now, like the one that uh, Helen Esser, our friend, friend of the show, uh, Agent Renegade, is working on. So I want to make sure that there's no overlap. So if you know of any, shoot it over to me. I may already know about it, but I may not. So let me know. Um, and also, some of the, as part of some of the new formatting for this show, you may notice that the, the uh, commercials have been cut down a lot. The, the promos and the ads for Friends have been cut down a lot. Um, I think we talked about this in the last episode. I can't, I don't listen to my episodes, guys. I don't remember. Um, but I'm trying to, to cut down for time a little bit. Um, and so we, I, I'm trying to keep it within this dedicated group that we kind of all share back and forth. Um, if you do have a promo that you want me to play, contact me. I will give it a listen and we'll see where we go from there. Um, so that's why the promos have been cut down. It's not a personal thing against anyone. I'm just trying to, um bring in a, a bit of a trying to tighten the time up a little bit because the show just got so ridiculously long and what it ends up for me is a lot more that I have to cut together and a lot more work so I'm just trying to cut that down uh, and that being said that's really all I've got for the intro on this one um, so I am going to play a promo for you and then we will see you on the other side, and we will have a discussion about today's book. All right, we'll be right back. A body falls past the window. <laughs> you put, put it down, and you feel like shaky all over. Both your hands are covered. Immediately peg him as a cognate. So we've known each other for years. One of the knives is missing from a garter hilt because it is being pressed to your throat. Oh, damn. We had a... Oh, my God. <laughs> Talking about Dread Nation by Justina Ireland today. Uh, the book came out 2018, um, and actually, I was going to do this book like a year ago, but things being what they are, I wasn't able to. Uh, so I'm glad I'm finally able to get to it now. So, Dread Nation, Justina Ireland. I'm going to go ahead and just read the um, the release summary for it to give you an idea. So, Jane McKean was born two days before the dead began to walk the battlefields of Gettysburg and Chancellorville, derailing the war between the states and changing America forever. In this new nation, safety for all depends on the work of a few, and laws like the Native and Negro Reeducation Act require certain children attend combat schools to learn to put down the dead, but there are also opportunities, and Jane is studying to become an attendant, trained in both weaponry and etiquette to protect the well-to-do. It's a chance for a better life for Negro girls like Jane. After all, not even being the daughter of a wealthy white southern woman could save her from society's expectations. But that's not a life Jane wants. Almost finished with her education at Miss Preston's School of Combat in Baltimore, Jane is set on returning to her Kentucky home and doesn't pay much mind to the politics of the eastern cities with their talk of returning to America. 
for the glory of its days before the dead rose. But when families around Baltimore County begin to go missing, Jane is caught in the middle of a conspiracy, one that finds her in a desperate fight for her life against some powerful enemies. And the rest of the dead, it would seem, are the least of her problems. And that, Jesus, that's true. Um, so, yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, it's young African-American women being sent to schools to learn how to fight the dead, but do it with style. Um, really cool idea, actually. Um, and if this does not get made into, uh, you know, a TV show, like a, you know, limited series TV show, I would be shocked and appalled because it's, it's one of those, some books are just written to be on the screen, and I think this is one of them. Um, really well done. Now, as with previous episodes, I am going to go into some explanations for you guys um, so that we can cover some of the um, phrases and ideas that um, Ms. Ireland uses in the book. And since not all of you are from America, and <laughs> for the ones that listen that are from America, not everybody in America knows all of their history all that well. So we are, oh, and again, as per the usual, I am uh, using Wikipedia for my summaries. Now, as we all know, Wikipedia is not the super best place, but it's a good jumping off point um, because I don't have time to do full deep down research on all of this. But I want to give you guys some ideas, as usual, and you know how this works. I give you the summaries, and you take it from there. Educate yourselves. Okay, so the first one we're going to talk about is Gettysburg. And again, not everybody knows a whole lot, so we're going to go ahead and cover uh, just the basics. The Gettysburg Campaign was a military invasion of Pennsylvania by the main Confederate Army under General Robert E. Lee in the summer of 1863. The Union won a decisive victory at Gettysburg, July 1st through the 3rd. Uh, there were heavy casualties on both sides. Lee did manage to escape back to Virginia with most of his army. Uh, it was a turning point in the American Civil War, with Lee increasingly pushed back toward Richmond until his surrender in April of 1865. Now, after his victory in the Battle of Chancellorsville, Lee's Army of Northern Virginia moved north for a massive raid designed to obtain... Sorry about the twitching and beeping from my phone. Let me put that on. Okay, so uh, the Union Army of the Potomac was commanded by Major General Joseph Hooker and then from June 28th by Major General George E. Meade. Lee's army slipped away from federal contact at Fredericksburg, Virginia on June 3rd, 1863. The largest predominantly cavalry battle of the war was fought at Brandy Station on June 9th. The Confederates crossed the Blue Ridge Mountains and moved north through the Shenandoah Valley, capturing the Union garrison at Winchester, Virginia in the Second Battle of Winchester, June 13th through 15th. Crossing the Potomac River, Lee's Second Corps advanced through Maryland and Pennsylvania, reaching the Susquehanna River. I know who that is. I live near that. And threatening the state capital of Harrisburg. However, the Army of the Potomac was in pursuit and had reached Frederick, Maryland before Lee realized his opponent had crossed the Potomac. Lee moved swiftly to concentrate his army around the crossroad town of Gettysburg. Crossroads is an important thing. We see that in a lot of stuff. And obviously here it's historical. But crossroads, they are an important matter, and we'll discuss actually something about crossroads here in just a little bit in the second half of the show. So, back to it. The Army of the Potomac was in pursuit and had reached Frederick, Maryland before Lee realized his opponent had crossed the Potomac. Um, oh, wait, we got that. We read that part already. Here we go. Battle of Gettysburg was the largest of the war. Starting as a chance meeting engagement on July 1st, 
The Confederates were initially successful in driving Union cavalry and two infantry corps from their defensive positions through the town and onto Cemetery Hill. On July 2nd, with most of both armies now present, Lee, Lee launched fierce assaults on both flanks of the Union defensive line, which was repulsed with heavy losses on both sides, really heavy losses on both sides. On July 3rd, Lee focused his attention on the Union Center. The defeat of his massive infantry assault Pickett's charge caused Lee to order a retreat that began the evening of July 4th. The Confederate retreat to Virginia was plagued by bad weather, difficult roads, and numerous skirmishes with Union cavalry. However, Meade's army did not maneuver aggressively enough to prevent Lee from crossing the Potomac to safety on the night of July 13th, 14th. Now, the thing that you need to really, that's really, really important about Gettysburg that you need to remember is the massive amount of casualties. Uh, it's estimated roughly, from what I could see, um, 32,000 estimated on both sides. Um, it was gnarly. A lot of people died. I mean, it was just, so that's her. Uh, so Justina Ireland using Gettysburg as the place where the dead rise, um, that's a lot of people coming back from the dead, a lot. So we are going to move on now to some, that's the places. We're going to move on to a couple of terms now, um, some creatures. We have a revenant. Now in folklore, a revenant is a visible ghost or an animated corpse. It's believed to have uh, been revived from death to haunt the living. The word revenant is derived from the old French word revenant, the returning. Uh, it's also related to the French verb revenir, meaning to come back. Revenants are part of the legend of various cultures, including Old Irish Celtic and Norse mythology. And stories of supposed revenant visitations were documented by English historians in the Middle Ages. Now, reference to revenant-like beings in Caribbean lore are often referred to as the Suquillant or the Suquillant in Germanica, Trinidadian, and Guadalupian folklore. They're also known as the Ole, I believe it's Olehigu and the Lugaru elsewhere in the Caribbean. Um, and actually, I've heard of the Lugaru before, um, or Rugaru. That is really common um, folklore here in southern Texas and especially in Louisiana. Now, zombies, of course, zombies. Um, Zombie, Haitian French, zombie, Haitian Creole, zombie, is a fictional undead being created through the reanimation of a human corpse. Zombies are most commonly found in horror and fantasy genre works. The term comes from the Haitian folklore, in which a zombie is a dead body reanimated through various, me various methods, most commonly magic. Modern depictions of the reanimation of the dead do not necessarily involve magic, but often involve science fictional methods such as carriers, radiation, mental diseases, vectors, pathogens, scientific accidents, etc. On a side note, we see this in um, the Clockwork Century series of Sherry Priest with the um, whatever it is, the blight gas that's riding, rising up out of uh, the Seattle underground, and that's turning people into zombies. So, you know, not a magic method, but a scientific, well, some kind of weird scientific method. Okay, so the English word zombie is first recorded in 1819 in a history of Brazil by the poet Robert Southey in the form of zombie, Z-O-M-B-I. The Oxford English Dictionary gives the origin of the word as West African and compares it to the Congo words nzambi, or God, and zumbi, or fetish. A Kimbundu to Portuguese Dictionary from 1903 defines the related word nzumbi as soul. 
while a later Kimbundu Portuguese dictionary defines it as being a spirit that was supposed to wander the earth, supposed to, which I thought was interesting phrasing, a spirit that is supposed to wander the earth to torment the living. One of the first books to expose Western culture to the concept of the voodoo zombie was The Magic Island by W.B. Seabrook in 1929, and this was the sensationalized account of a narrator who encounters voodoo cults in Haiti and their resurrected thralls. And Time Magazine claimed that the book introduced zombie into U.S. speech. So take that for what it's worth. Now, a couple of phrases that have to do with people in these books, um, uh, people of mixed races. The first one is passing light. Um, it's just what it sounds like. Passing is the ability of a person to be regarded as a member of an, ed- of an identity group or a category different from their own, which may include racial, ethnic- racial identity, ethnicity, caste, social class, sexual orientation, gender, religion, age, and or disability status. Passing may result in privileges, rewards, or an increase in social acceptance, or be used to cope with stigma. Thus, passing may serve as a form of preservation or self-protection in instances where expression, expressing one's true or prior identity may be dangerous. Passing may require acceptance into a community and may also lead to temporary or permanent leave from another community to which an individual previously belonged. Thus, passing can result in separation from one's original self, family, friends, and or previous living experiences. While successful passing may contribute to economic security, safety, and avoidance of stigma, it may take an emotional toll as a result of denial of one's previous identity and may lead to depression or self-loathing. Now, that's passing in general. In the book, we run across passing light, which, of course, uh, is passing as white if you can uh, and you believe that you need to. Uh, But passing is also something we've come up against in previous books. Uh, The Gaslight Empire series, uh, Elizabeth very often has to pass as her quote-unquote brother. Uh, She has to pass as a male in order to get a lot of things done. Passing is not the same as, um, this is, again, and this is where we come into things like um, racial identity, uh, sexual orientation, gender. There are homosexuals who have to pass pass as a heterosexual not so much anymore but it does still happen in other countries especially um, where you have to pass as heterosexual uh, in order to stay alive um or again women that have to pass as men usually a lot i think a lot of these cases are cases where it's it's yes it's for safety it's for security it's to keep your it's for survival um so when we talk about passing passing is not the same as uh, being transgender, it's not its not the same thing at all. Um, passing is something that you do, uh, again, to survive. It's a survival technique. So we don't want to conflate those two issues. Um, but yeah, like I said, in the book, it is called passing light. Or she refers to it as passing light. Because in this case, when we're talking about passing, we're specifically talking about um, African-American characters who are uh, light-skinned enough. And that's going to be really, really important later on. Uh, the other one is something I had never heard before. Um, it's a term called red bone, and it's a term historically used in much of the southern U.S. to denote a multiracial individual or culture. In Louisiana, it also refers to specific geographically and ethnically distinct group. The term has had various meanings according to locality, mostly implying multiracial people. In Louisiana, the red bone cultural group consists mainly of families of migrants to the state following the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. The term red bone became disfavored as it was a pejorative nickname applied to others. However, in the past 30 years, the terms began to be used as a preferred description for some Creole groups, including the Louisiana red bone. And in the book, the term is specifically used for um, 
a young man of Native American and African ancestry. Um, it has to do with the coloring of the skin, obviously. Okay. Now, the final two things we're going to talk about, we're going to cover heathen schools. Now, I know we've talked about heathen schools before uh, last summer, but I did want to go over it again because it is um, directly related to this book. And at the actually at the end of the book, Christina Ireland does bring up, you know, something afterward, uh, the Native American schools. So, the Native American boarding schools, also known as Indian residential schools, were established in the United States during the late 19th and mid-20th centuries with a primary objective of assimilating Native American children and youth into Euro-American culture, while at the same time providing a basic education in Euro-American subject matters. These boarding schools were first established by Christian missionaries of various denominations who often started schools on reservations, especially in the lightly populated areas of the West. The government paid religious orders to provide basic education to Native American children on reservations, in the late 19th and early 20th century, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, the BIA, founded additional boarding schools based on the assimilation model of the off-reservation off Carlisle Indian Industrial School, and that's the school that um, Justina Ireland will bring up in her afterward, is that one specifically. Children were typically immersed in European-American culture through forced changes that removed indigenous cultural signifiers. These methods included being forced to have European-American-style haircuts, being forbidden to speak their indigenous languages, and having their real names replaced by European names to both civilize and Christianize them. Um, and in a similar incident, uh, bank children were required to speak Russian when sent to boarding schools in the former Soviet Union. Um, and there's also, I, know, I, think, I believe there were instances in Wales where Welsh children... Um, were sent to English schools and were no longer allowed to speak Welsh. I'm not sure about the Irish. I guess we should ask Irish folks about that. Um, but I believe it's the same way where you want to um, homogenize everybody. You want them all on the same page. And English was the civilized world. The English language was the civilized language, weirdly enough, given the nature of English. But moving on. The experience of children of the schools was usually harsh, often deadly, especially for younger children who were forcibly separated from their families, and that's really, really important. They were forcibly separated. They weren't just sent off by their parents as an opportunity. They were taken away. Um, the children were forced to abandon their Native American identities and cultures. Investigations of the later 20th century have revealed many documented cases of sexual, manual, physical, and mental abuse occurring mostly in church-run schools. Since those years, tribal nations have increasingly insisted on community-based schools and have also founded numerous tribal colleges and universities. Community schools have also been supported by the federal government through the BIA and legislation. The largest boarding schools have closed. By 2007, most of the schools had been closed down, and the number of Native American children in boarding schools had declined to 9,500. During the same period, more Native Americans moved to urban environments, accommodating in varying degrees and manners to majority culture. So... Um, we talked about this in Gaslight Dogs, and I'll talk about it again in the second half. Um, there's a really good book by John Demos that goes into this. Uh, we read it in one of my classes um, as an undergrad. And, yeah, these schools were, they were just, they were, they were a nightmare. And it wasn't just here in America. Uh, the first, there were schools for First Nations peoples in Canada that were also um, very, very bad, just, Look into them sometimes. Look up the issue with the uh, First Nations boarding schools. There's some a lot of bad stuff that happened um, 
and you have that when you have this kind of situation where you're forcibly removing children uh, and sending them off to a school and removing their hair and um, removing their clothing and their belongings and everything that ties them to this culture and then but the but you never really let them into the quote-unquote white culture either where they're expected to dress like the white people and do their hair like the white people and speak like the white people and worship like the white people and eat the same things that the white people eat but they're never really considered members of that culture they're still on the fringes they're expected to behave like the white people but they're also expected to take the bullshit that is given them to the to them by the white people that very often will employ them um, it's a weird liminal um, existence and it's necessarily going to cause problems and it's going to cause psychological issues uh, because of that so that's the Native American schools now the last thing that I want to talk about here um, because of an incident that happens in the book later I want to talk about the Tuskegee experiments um, I don't know how many people actually know that this happened in the south or how many let me let me rephrase that I don't know how many white people in America know about the Tuskegee experiments um, or if they've heard about it and they just didn't really care or they didn't know what it was so that's why we're gonna talk about it it's horrific um, it's probably triggering just so you know but we need to talk about it I'd be like I said because of an incident that happens later in the book so, the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male was an infamous and unethical clinical study conducted between 1932 and 1972 by the U.S. Public Health Service. The purpose of this study was to observe the natural history of untreated syphilis. The African-American men in the study were told they were receiving free health care from the United States government. The Public Health Service started working on this study in 1932 in collaboration with Tuskegee University, a historically black college. Investigators enrolled in the study a total of 600 impoverished African-American sharecroppers from Macon County, Alabama. Of these men, 399 had previously contracted syphilis before the study began, and 201 did not have the disease. The men were given free medical care, meals, and free burial insurance for participating in the study. The men were told the study was only going to last six months. It lasted 40 years. After funding for treatment was lost, the study was continued without informing the men that they would never be treated. So let me re repeat that. After funding for treatment was lost, the study was continued without informing the men that they would never be treated. Okay? None of the men were ever told that they had the disease and none were treated with penicillin, even after the antibiotic was proven to successfully treat syphilis. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the men were told they were being treated for bad blood, a colloquial, colloquialism that described various conditions such as syphilis, anemia, and fatigue. Uh, bad blood, specifically because of the collection of illnesses the term included, was a leading cause of death within the Southern African American community. The 40-year study was controversial for, <laughs> for reasons related to ethical standards. Sorry. I, that just seems like a, just a wild understatement. Researchers knowingly failed to treat patients appropriately after the 1940s validation of penicillin was found as an effective study, or sorry, let me, that was a weird sentence. Uh, researchers knowingly failed to treat patients appropriately 
even after the 1940s validation of penicillin was found as an effective cure for the disease that they were studying. And let's get that, let's make sure that that's really, really clear. Prior to penicillin, syphilis was gnarly. It ravaged your body. It ripped you apart. It was horrible. It got into your brain. I mean, it was just, it did terrible, terrible things to you. Um, I'm not even going to talk about all of it. Look it up. It's gross. It's horrible. Nobody should have to go through that. I don't care who you are or what you've done. But if you contract penicillin, or uh, penicillin, if you contract syphilis now, and you get some penicillin, you're going to be fine. As with most things nowadays in the modern medicine, age of modern medicine, you take some penicillin or antibiotic, you're fine. So this was in the 40s that they figured out that penicillin worked on it. They didn't use it. So, the revelation in 1972 of study failures by a whistleblower, Peter Buxton, led to major changes in U.S. law and regulation on the protection of participants in clinical studies. Now, studies require informed consent, communication of diagnosis, and accurate reporting of test results. So, by 1947, penicillin had become the standard treatment for syphilis. Choices available to doctors involved in the study might have included treating all syphilitic subjects and closing the study, or splitting off the control group for testing with penicillin. Instead, the Tuskegee scientists continued to study without treating any participants. They withheld, they withheld penicillin and information about it from the patients. In addition, scientists prevented participants from accessing syphilis treatment programs available to other residents in the area. The study continued under numerous U.S. Public Health Service supervisors until 1972, when a leak to the press resulted in its termination on November 16th of that year. The victims of the study... All African-American included numerous men who died of syphilis, 40 wives who contracted the disease, and 19 children born with congenital syphilis. The Tuskegee Syphilis Study, cited as arguably the most infamous biomedical research study in the U.S., led to the 1979 Belmont Report and to the establishment of the Office for Human Research. Sorry. The establishment of the Office for Human Research Protections, it also led to federal laws and regulations requiring institutional review boards for the protection of human subjects and studies involving them. The OHRP manages this responsibility within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. On May 16, 1997, President Bill Clinton formally apologized on behalf of the United States to the victims of the experiment. <laughs> I'm sure that was... Very comforting. Um, so, yeah, if you've never heard of the Tuskegee experiments, it was a horrific violation. Uh, 40 years, 40 years. Nobody was ever told. And the fact that they blocked them from getting help anywhere else, people were dying and they didn't know why, and their wives were sick, and their children, their children, they're, they're giving birth to children. I, okay. It just. And I feel like it's redundant to say that this is gross and horrific. I mean, this is, these are the things that happen. These are the things that people try to bury. These are the things we cover up. But they happen. They've happened. They've, and if you think that things like this, this is where I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat, so forgive me for a second. But if you think that things like this aren't happening in America and around the world today, you would be wrong. They are. No matter how many institutional review boards there are, things like this still happen. They just do. I mean, I'm not like, I'm not going to start screaming into the microphone about conspiracy theories and, you know, 
fluoride in the water. It's not like that. I'm, I'm not, I fully believe in vaccines. I fully believe in modern medicine. But I also believe that there is a line that medical researchers and scientists and corporations can talk themselves into when it comes to studies like this. Um, that line, that idea of the greater good, you know, one person to save how many, it's a cold equation and I don't like it. And honestly, that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> that's my next podcast, Tinfoil Hat, <laughs> with Elizabeth Hedrick. But for now, um, that's what you need to know about uh, some of the stuff that's going on in the book. And as always, I encourage you to research on your own from here to, uh, you know, vet my ideas. I may not be right about everything I'm reading from Wikipedia. It's your job to go out and find out more because it's important and you need to know. So, having said all that and thoroughly creeped you out with uh, 20 minutes about syphilis, we're going to take a musical break. We'll be back in a few minutes and we will move on to the book itself and all of its wonder. We've just discovered a very rare bit of audio from former Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Let's have a listen. I, Winston Churchill, wholeheartedly believe that the Clockwork Cabaret is the finest example of steampunk radio programming. Never before have I heard anything quite so marvelous, and I doubt I shall ever hear anything like it again. Calpurnia, continue on your journey. Broadcasting your marvelous music and sail on to glory. If you would like to find out more about this program, please check out clockworkcabaret.com or clockworkcabaret.podbean.com or follow us on Twitter at clockworkcabaret. That's C-L-O-C-K-W-R-K Cabaret. Morning terrors and my nights of dread I saw my soul staple to my bed It's weighing down on me It's weighing down on me My head between my knees I can't breathe Pacing around the ashes on my floor Sometimes I wish I could fly out of the window Weighing down on me It's weighing down on me I cold sweat through my arteries I can't breathe No one gets it easy No one gets it easy
Victorian goth, a weird west enthusiast, a sky pirate, or just steam curious. If so, then join the Texas Steampunk Connection as we review and enjoy steampunk books, movies, comics, games, films, and events all over the great state of Texas. Come along with your hosts, Flavio, Erica, and Thax, as we enjoy steampunk adventures and share our discoveries with you. Something, 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 hats, corsets, boots, etiquette. Pistachios, teapots, bullocks. Find us on Facebook and fanboytv.com or wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> Goggles, gear, something, something. And always, always mind, mind your, your gauges. gauges. Morning Terrors, Night of Dread by Shilpa Ray. And you can find that, as usual, at thefreemusicarchive.org. I think. Yes, okay. It's in the show notes. <laughs> okay, so. Dread Nation, Justina Ireland. Um, good book. Really good book. 
I've heard different comparisons of Buffy, of course, um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, uh, the Colleen Gleason series a few years ago with the vampire, the, the young vampire hunter. Um, so there, there's different comparisons, but this one is, I guess, comparable to Buffy if Kendra was the lead. Um, so we have Jane McKean, and this book, um, when I was talking about it with Mr. Stocking, and I said, oh, I'd love to see this made into a TV show, and he said, do you really think it would be? And I said, eh, I said, I think it could. I said, you know, there's still a long way to go, but things are getting a little little more diverse. They're getting a little better. Um, and his comment was, I would love to see Shonda Rhimes turn this into a TV show. So, you know, we'll see what happens there. Um, now, in um, in the book, Light Clockwork, Seeing Punk, Past, Presents, and Futures, Jamie Goh, um, who we've discussed much on the show before, um, she is quoted as saying, by using anachronism to tamper with timelines, a writer of color can also tinker with how migration, assimilation, segregation, and other such cultural movements occur. This makes visible how identities are shaped by such histories and how they could be shaped otherwise. This tampering also allows us to think through the process of colonization and methods of empowerment. And that's what Justina Ireland has done with this book. Um, the... And I hate that phrase, forced migration. I know, I understand the purpose of it, but forced migration makes it sound much less virulent and horrific than it was. But by using this alternate, um, an alternate history, uh, a bit of a, a steampunk environment, um, and flipping it, as we've talked about before, um, and making a young African-American woman or a young mixed-race woman um, the lead character speaking in her voice, telling her story. Someone else is not telling her story. Jane tells her story. It is first person. It is all about Jane um, and what is happening through her eyes, through her voice, through her body. Um, and it's really well done. Now, the school we've talked about before, Miss um, Preston's School for of Combat for Negro Girls, uh, it's very similar to the Native American boarding schools that we discussed in the first part and we've talked about in previous episodes. And essentially, as was mentioned, these girls, um, this isn't the only one of these. There are other schools like this. Uh, Miss Preston's is supposed to be one of the best. But these girls, um, it uh, all comes down to the Negro and Native Reeducation Act, uh, which mandates that at 12 years old, all Negroes and any Indians living in a protectorate must enroll in a combat school, quote, for the betterment of themselves and of society. Um, one of the issues that she brings up is that there really aren't that many uh, Native American young women at these schools because they have a tendency to run away. Uh, the black girls stay, the Indian girls run away. Um, and that's, there's, she doesn't get into the Native American aspect of it a lot. There is There are a few Native American characters that come up. Um, but this is more about Jane and uh, the black girls at the school and their experiences. Um, now, not all of the girls are um, full black. There are mixed-race girls. There are mixed uh, black and Native American. There are mixed black and white girls. There are There's a, a broad variety of girls at the school. And one of the girls, um, the one that Jane professes to have such strong distaste for is the incredibly beautiful Catherine. Catherine is 
and is just surpassingly in love with you. She's very beautiful. Uh, goldeny hair, uh, light eyes. Catherine can pass um, as white without a problem. And that will become an issue. That will come up later on in the book uh, when Jane uh, finds herself in the situation of trying to keep Catherine safe. Um, so the book begins with kind of a, a back and forth um, between Catherine and Jane, and a back and forth between Jane and another uh, young man. Um, between Jane and uh, character Jackson. Uh, Red Jack, that is, he's the one um, where Redbone comes up. He is um, a mixed young man, um, African and Native American. So there's the, the tension between her and Catherine, the tension between her and uh, Jack. And she had had a relationship with Jackson at one point, and he brought her, he would bring her things to read. Um, because reading, it's another thing, reading is not allowed, or it's, it's frowned upon. Um, they're taught etiquette, they're taught combat. There is that general assumption um, that was believed for a long time that women just had no interest in learning or reading, and especially a slave that can read, or not a slave. Slavery is outlawed now at this point in the book. Um, but uh, even a free woman of color, uh, a black woman that can read, that's that's not a good thing. That's not acceptable. Um, but they're talking about... <laughs> One thing that I love about Jane is that Jane is an unabashed liar and a cheat and a thief, and she is not ashamed. She does what she needs to do, um, and when she's called out on it, she'll admit it or she won't, you know, but it doesn't bother her. You know, she's surviving. She's getting along. She's doing her thing. Um, now, Jane, we also find out later on, is sneaking out at night and hunting uh, in the area because they're not supposed to be doing this. She's hunting, they call them shamblers in this one. Uh, she's hunting shamblers in the area. And she'll come to find out from a character that just really dislikes her um, that she is, I believe, called the Angel of the Crossroads. She's there, they're starting to call her the Angel of the Crossroads because of what she's doing. The problem is that the more she's doing that, the more that her name is going to be known and Miss Preston is going to find out what she's doing. Because there is an eponymous, there is a Miss Preston for which the school is named. Um, and I was... <laughs> We're going to find out some things about Miss Preston that actually made me... that I, I should have seen it coming with a book like this and a story like this. You know, you should see it coming, but I was sad. I thought she was kind of neat, and, you know, nope. <laughs> Not at all. Um, now, one thing that they bring up, it, it seemed especially timely, um, one of the quotes from the book is, where is it? Uh, according to the experts, there haven't been any major attacks within the city limits or even in the county at large since before the last rising day. And I've heard enough political speeches to know that letting rich, white city folk think that we've made even a small part of America safe again is a better stump speech than telling them that, telling them that we're still in trouble five years after the Army stopped fighting the dead, especially when the current political party has been in charge that whole time. So essentially, as long as the rich white people think that everything's okay, then everything's okay. We're not going to tell them what's really happening in parts of the country that we don't want to think about because it doesn't affect their life. We don't want, you know, rich white people don't want to think about what's things that don't directly affect their life. Other people are, are having a horrible time. I mean, Flint still has absolutely horrific water. But, you know, as long as the rich white people are safe, they don't... Racism doesn't affect them directly, so they don't believe it exists and they don't worry about it. Um privilege y'all it's a real thing now I also one thing that really struck me um obviously there's there's you know 
uh, parallels to what's happening in the country and what's been happening for a few years since the, the rise of Trump. Um, but this idea, and something that really you started to hear, a, I started to see a lot on Twitter, um, the idea, especially when it came to Roy Moore, uh, was it last year, the year before, last year, I, so many things have happened that I can't even keep track of when it's all happening now, it's like all time is happening at once, um, but whenever the Roy Moore debacle happened, and the black women overwhelmingly came out, uh, voting against, you know, voting for his opponent, voting against Roy Moore, and this idea that, uh, black women are going to save us, that we always look to the black women to save us, and now we have black women being trained to save us. Um, since she took that, you know, Ireland took that and flipped that and made that very literal, very real. Um, this isn't just a situation where we need them to get to the polls and pull us out of our own self-defeating purposes. Uh, they are saving our asses. They are armed. They are beautifully decked out, and they are saving our asses, and they're going to die in the process. But there will be more. There will be more that are trained and put out there on the front lines to continue to save our asses. None of them really have, you know, a personality of their own. It doesn't matter because they are there to save us. And it's, it was an interesting and it was a very interesting way to take that idea and, and put that out there. And as, as we've talked about before, make us see it from a different direction. Make us see it from a different perspective that this is what we are expecting. Obviously, we're not going to have black women saving us in a zombie apocalypse, or I guess it depends on whether you believe in that kind of thing happening, but this is what we expect. We expect these certain people to pull us out of our own, you know, voting against our interests, especially middle, women in my demographic, middle-aged white women, that continually, continually vote against their own fucking self-interest time and time again. And that is something that has got to stop. But it, I don't know. I don't see. I don't see it happening yet. But who knows? Um, now, the next thing that I wanted to go over: what the the idea of passing light, which comes up again and again and again. Um, again, Catherine, uh, Jane's rival, and I'm still not convinced that Jane doesn't have a a thing for Catherine. I think she does. I think there's there's. I don't know. There seems like sparkage there. Like you don't you don't dislike someone that much if there's not some kind of passion there, but that could just be me projecting. So uh, Jane's mother, she was an interesting character, and as I, I, I make notes when I'm reading the books, um, and so it was <laughs> there was last minute changes I had to make as I was finishing the book, um, because when we're reading the book and we're talking about Jane's mother who is, we're told, Jane's mother is white, which this, because my first notes were interesting twist. Um, instead of the rich white plantation, you know, rich white male plantation owner being, you know, the father and the mother is a, a slave, in this case we have the white female plantation owner who is the mother and the father is um, one of the, the freed slaves. So, what they're saying at first, they say that um, when we first hear about Mama, when Jane's talking about her Mama, she says, my Mama is an unusual woman. She didn't much like the whole concept of slavery, no matter how honorable it was. And there were rumors that she was sort of disappointed with her husband, the Major, when he left her to fight for the Confederacy. But the strangest thing about Mama, the thing that made some of the neighbors smile tightly and alienated all the rest, is Mama's rumored pension for field hands, the stronger, the darker, the better. 
So when I was talking about this with Mr. Talking, I'm like, this is, you know, it's an interesting twist that it's, you know, the, the woman in charge of the, the, the white lady in charge of the plantation, and that this is what's happened, and that she gave birth to Jane, and she kept Jane, even though Charlotte suggested that Jane not survive her infancy. Um, but then you get to the very end, and when Jane is talking to Catherine and explaining something to Catherine, and she feels that she needs to be honest with Catherine, and she says, uh, it actually did a double take. <laughs> when she, my mama is passing light, just like you, I say, because she deserves to know. She was a slave. When her mistress died on the road to meet her fiancé, my mama pretended to be her, and that's how she came to be the, the mistress of Rose Hill. It near drove her mad, all the lying and subterfuge, but she did it to save her family, to save everyone. So that was, that I thought was, that was a twist I was not expecting, and I loved it. I thought it was wonderful. Um, and Jane's mom, there's there's an issue where Jane is sending letters to her mother, and she doesn't know that her mother is not, because Jane's mom did hid her for a long time whenever the agents would come to take the, the girls away to these schools. Jane's mother would hide her. Um, but Jane knew she was being hidden, and so finally she just gave herself up, and her mom was not happy with this. So Jane is writing to her mother while she's at this school and receiving no response. And what we find out later is that the letters were never being sent. And Jane's mother has been writing to her this whole time. But Jane has not been given the letters, and so Jane's going to... I really am hoping there's going to be a, a sequel to this, because Jane's got to go rescue her mother, uh, who ran and is off with a group... They're called survivalists. Um, my first thought was the maggots, the maggot idiots, is what the survivalists maybe think of, or like the Alex Jones insane people. Um, so that's where Mama is. They all had to, to take off. Um, and the reason that I that we went into the, um, the reason I went into the Tuskegee experiments, there's an issue that comes up early on in the book um, that gets Jane some uh, attention that she probably would have been better left not getting. Um, they're going to, the young ladies at the school will often go into town, uh, Baltimore, to lectures and things like that. And so Jane and Catherine and uh, some of the teachers from the school or at a lecture, they're watching a, a or like a, a demonstration uh, by a doctor, uh, Doctor Gearing, uh, Professor Gearing, and um, what we're there. This big cage is rolled onto the stage with I think three pretty fresh shamblers in it, snapping and growling. And the professor has um, a man that works for him named Othello, and then he says, "Now Othello here is going to willingly." <laughs> Willingly submit to a shambler's bite in order to demonstrate the increased resistance of a vaccinated Negro. Earlier this week, Othello received a series of shots which were painless. The professor takes out his handkerchief and mops his brow once more before tucking it back into his pocket. I'm certain he ain't told the whole truth. He ain't told the truth the whole time he's been up there since he's sweating like a murderer in church. What is this man playing at? Yeah, he vaccinated, quote unquote, vaccinated Othello against uh, the shambler bite, and then makes. Othello stick his arm up to the cage so they can bite him. And, of course, this goes exactly like you think it would with Othello turning, Jane and Catherine save the day, and it's a big uh, hullabaloo. But it's this idea of testing something on, you know, it 
testing things on people who have either not given consent or have given uninformed consent because that's just as bad. If someone says yes, says yes and agrees to something, but they don't understand exactly what they're agreeing to, that's just as unethical. That is just as wrong, which is what we saw with the Tuskegee experiment. So that's why I wanted to bring that portion up. Um, it's a horrific thing to think about, but it's something that needs to be thought about. And this is what I'm sure, you know, when I, when I do this, when I do these, these podcasts, when I talk about these books, if you're listening to this, then I'm assuming it's because you, you like to take a more critical look at your fiction. And if you don't, that's fine. That's, I haven't had to bring that up in a while. But if you don't like to take a more critical look at your fiction, it's all good. Um, but what I want is if you're reading these books is to take a more critical look and to understand where an author like Justine Ireland is pulling her ideas from. She's pulling from, you know, I mean, she doesn't say that she's pulling from the Tuskegee experiments, but it's not like it's the first time that um, people of color have been experimented on. Uh, it's happened before Tuskegee is, I'm sure it happened plenty afterwards. It's still happening somewhere. So this is the kind of place that they're pulling from, and these are the kind of things that you need to know in order to deeper understand why a situation like this, where this ostensibly you know, free man of color who's working for this professor, willingly or unwillingly holds his arm up to be bitten and then ends up getting turned and ends up dying because of it. Because he didn't have all of the facts, and he was doing what he was told to do because he's the hired man. Um, so that was that part. Now, the what we find out later towards the end, uh, uh, well, the second part of the book, rather, not towards the end, but the book two, the second portion of the book, um, is when Jane and Catherine event and Jack uh, Jackson eventually screw up, and. Um, they're nabbed by the mayor, and they're making too much noise, but they've also proven, yeah, Catherine and Jane have also proven that they're pretty effective and pretty good at what they do. When we find out that Miss Preston's school is not what we thought it was, and there are families that have been disappearing, and there are attendants that have been disappearing, and they're all being shipped west to a place in Kansas called Summerland. Um, and the way it's, it's described is, and I'm going to use, a phrase that I would never normally use, but it's in the book, and it's part of the dialogue. So, when Summerland is described to them, um, when, they're, when they're talking about Summerland, they say, Summerland ain't no delusion. This place is the foundation of a new America, one that embraces the promise of greatness and our founding that embraces the promise of greatness our founding fathers once made. Don't you see? Darkies, they got their place, and it ain't brushing elbows with respectable folk. Now, what does that make you think of? What does that put you in mind of? It uh, makes me think of the last however many decades it's been since Trump has been president and the shit that we hear, the rhetoric, rhetoric we hear, the poison that we hear streaming is out of the government, out of conservative talk show hosts, out of the president's tweets. I mean, Jesus Christ, wasn't there a tweet today where he was harassing Elizabeth Warren once again over her ill-conceived uh, DNA test and he made the comment about the trail, the campaign trail, or with trail in all caps, and now there's people saying, oh, he didn't really mean that. He couldn't have known what he was saying. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't put it in all caps like that if you weren't specifically referring to the trail of tears. So this vocal and very, very loud attempt to marginalize people and to make it clear that there are others and that they need to stay in their place and that they shouldn't be anywhere near uh, respectable white people 
Like the caravan, this weird appearing and disappearing caravan bullshit that's coming up from, I, yeah. It's the same kind of thing. It's the, the idea that everyone else should be separate from the white people. So, you know, the, the people that aren't white will go to Summerland to work. To function as employees, as patrols. They will patrol for shamblers to keep the white people safe. Um, and it's that same idea time and time again. And it's, it's this idea of, you know, a, a foundation of a new America. Um, because America has become overrun by people who ain't white. So now we've got to rebuild it again. And we've got to put them back in their place again. Because... These people who aren't white keep showing up with a healthy self-esteem and, you know, some sense of self-worth. And so we've got to kick them back down again. It's just, just bananas. Um, so, oh, and uh, one very important, if you're wondering where the steampunkness of it all is, it's not, this isn't one of those over, you know, ridiculous airships and blah, blah, blah stuff. Um, but there are steam-driven carriages, uh, the iron horses, I think they're called. Because there's no more horses in the South, because uh, in the words, <laughs> all the horses got at, they are all dead. The shamblers ate the horses. Um, yeah, they're gone. Uh, now, when they go to Kansas, Jane can see real horses, I think, for the first time. Uh, they're still out there. But in the South, you have these... Uh, shaky, rattly, noisy uh, steam carriages that everybody gets around in, and they are also safer than horses or regular carriages um, because the shamblers, there's nothing for the shamblers to eat except what's inside of the carriage, and it's all bolted up and sealed and safe, and it gets you from where you need to go because um, being on the road is not safe because they come out of nowhere. They are everywhere. Um, now, I don't, I may have missed it, I don't know if she made an indication of how they came to be in this book. I don't remember seeing it. Um, this they rose up from. You know what? Hang on. Yeah, I just I wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy, uh, so I went back and looked real quick. Yeah, there is no reason given. In fact, what she says is, Miss um, Duncan, one of the. Teachers says, um, on the reason behind the dead rising, we've all heard preachers insisting that it's our sins uh, of one sort or another that have caused the plague upon our soil, but the country's best minds have been trying to ascertain a scientific basis, and they are quite divided on the cause and the reasoning behind it. And she's talking to Jane, and Jane is fucking smart. Jane is sharp as a goddamn tack. Um, she reads a lot. She is very, very very intelligent and she's trying to put it together and so she's saying that uh well I've, I've been she has to correct herself she can't say that she's been reading but that she's heard some folks saying that there's tiny little critters that cause infection um and she says as she starts going into joseph lister um she's and then she ends up breaking down and she says i read an article in the evening post a few weeks ago about a man named joseph lister over in england and so she goes into the idea behind infection um, and what causes them and how they can be fought. So we don't know what it is that caused the, ri the dead to rise at Gettysburg. Um, <laughs> but it could have been anything. And obviously with that many dead people and Civil War field medicine and the like, 
And, you know, I mean, it may be that she never really reveals what it is, and it's just uh, a MacGuffin. It's one of those things we won't know. It's just kind of there, and it doesn't really matter. Because the, the way the zombies are created in this instance may not matter. It's not the zombies themselves. It's the situation surrounding it and what's happened because of it. Um, you know, it's, it's a plot device, and it works for the book. So I think she did a really good job. Um, it's clever. It is smart. It's funny. Uh, it's a just a sharp young sharp heroine who she's intelligent she's quick um, she's powerful she knows her own mind she knows her self-worth um, and it was really well done so I'm sorry it took me so long to get to it um, and I'm hoping that she will do more because right now it is just the one book and if you haven't seen the book you need to at least look it up and look at the cover because it is gorgeous it is such a beautiful cover um so that is dread nation by justina ireland and i do as usual absolutely recommend it um and you know if she decides to release a second one then we'll go in and do a, another sequel episode but um if you have any thoughts or concerns about my discussion or questions um look me up on the interwebs and we will discuss it thank you for listening do you have foreign engineers building your railroads no yow foreign bankers holding your debt no yow foreign gumballs in your harbor <laughs> then you need Mohammedan and Celestia chartered purveyors of this book modernity since October 18th 1860 we know Reaper Drone is the new Gatling gun. We know Intermodal Cargo Container is the new Opium Chest. We know the early 21st century is the new late 19th. And we are here to modernificate you against it. So, delay no more. Visit us in the intertubes at www.mohammedanandcelestial.com At Mohammedan and Celestial, and we have the great powers invoked civilization. We chamber around in our C-96 on your behalf. Okay, well, I think that pretty much does it for this episode of Steampunk Dollhouse. I hope you enjoyed uh, this rundown of Dread Nation. As with anything, I can only do so much, but hopefully I gave you a good idea of what the book's about, and You'll run out and get it on your own and thoroughly devour it. Um, let's see, what else do I have to add? I forgot to say in the intro, if you don't necessarily follow me on, if you don't follow me on Instagram or on Twitter, I got a new tattoo. Uh, totally got my uh, Beta Phi Mu tattoo. I think I explained this in the last episode, I can't remember, but Beta Phi Mu is the library, the International Library Honor Society. It's kind of hard to get into. Um, you have to be invited, you can't just apply. And I was uh, brought into it when I graduated library school in December. And I decided I wanted to get a tattoo. And the symbol of the group, it's taken from the old printer symbol of a Renaissance printer named Aldous Minutius. Um, and I decided I wanted a really, I wanted it to look like a nasty sailor's tattoo, right? All right on my forearm. Um, and I've got the, um, Beta Phi Mu comes from the phrase Bibliothecarios Philaxmathesis. I don't speak Greek, so I'm probably saying that wrong. But it means the librarian is the guardian of knowledge. 
And so that's what I have. I have the, the phrase surrounding the, uh, the printer symbol, which is an anchor with an old gnarly Renaissance dolphin wrapped around it. It's pretty badass. Um, so go look it up on Instagram. I'm very proud of it. It's, it's big. <laughs> it is not a small tattoo, but I like it a lot. Uh, it was Dark Age Tattoo here in Denton. Uh, Danny Pando is the artist. Did a really good job, and he was really fast, too, so I'm probably going to be going back to him. Um, other than that, if you, as I mentioned in the intro, have a podcast that you would like to promote with us, um, or if you have a song that you want me to play, then contact me here at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com. Uh, you can also contact me on Twitter at spdhpod, and we'll talk. And with that, we're done. We'll see you next month. For the Clockwork Samurai in Autumn, or Why One Should Always Beware White Men Bearing Gifts, with Jeannie Lynn's The Gunpowder Chronicles.